PCA Caldwell was very, very well known. I mean, he's the highest ranking officer to be targeted in Northern Ireland in what we call peacetime, I suppose, but it's an imperfect peace, let's face it. Did those intelligence service think, you know, job done, these people are done, they have no threat anymore, and take their eye off the ball. You know, there's no place for this type of, of violence anymore because violence is just violence for violence sake. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A car has emerged as a key piece of evidence in the attempted murder of PSNI Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell after football training in OMAT last week. A callous shooting which has shocked all Ireland. The second-hand Fiesta purchased in a private sale on February the 8th was hidden in Belfast and then used by the gunmen who sprayed bullets at the officer after a training session for teenagers. Today, I'm talking with Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris about the recruitment of young men into the new IRA, which had been deemed a reduced terror threat in Northern Ireland before the attack. We discuss the group's motive to kill, its use of propaganda, and its intent to make policing Northern Ireland a thankless job. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. The attempted murder on Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell has horrified everybody, both north and south. Um, I think put the focus of attention on the new IRA. So I just wanted to ask you, as much as you can, who's in custody? All varying ages and, you know, how significant players are they? Yeah, well, there, there are six people currently in custody and they range in age from 22 to 71 um, some of those would be names that would have been instantly recognisable to people like myself who work in the field of security journalism. There'd be people who would be long-standing associations with um, that sort of dissident Republican world. And there's also someone who is the son of a, a, a very senior dissident Republican as one of those arrested. And then I believe that another two of the other people who are arrested have been arrested in relation to allegations linked to the car that was used as a getaway car by the um, by the gunmen responsible. So we have a mixture of people, some who would be known to police, some who wouldn't necessarily be linked to distant Republicans. In fact, one of them you know, would be more associated with criminality. And I'm told that the, some of them are being questioned about the attack and others are being questioned about the supply and purchase of the car that was used. So is there any suggestion they have a suspected gunman there amongst them? They believe that they do, but the arrest came really quickly after the attack on DCI Caldwell. So I think what you'll find is police have applied for several extensions to hold the suspects in the, the terrorism legislation that exists at present. And, and interestingly enough, that, that legislation was not introduced with Northern Ireland in mind. It was introduced at a time when there was relatively little um, activity in relation to distant Republicans. It was actually introduced through Parliament after the 7-11 attacks in London and it was more to do with the um, Islamic terror threat that existed at that time in England. But it, it means those sort of beefed up terrorist legislation means that suspects um, can be held for up to 14 days without charge. Um, now saying that the, the, the PSNI then would have to apply for extensions every two days and they've applied for a number of extensions. One of those for the first two suspects who were arrested will run out 
um, on Tuesday evening. And then there will be the question of whether or not a further extension is applied for or they're either charged or released. Um, but we'll know more as it comes closer to the time when that extension runs out. A further extension was applied for the 71-year-old and that's been granted. Um, they have to produce some sort of evidence to the judge to say this is why we feel we should hold these people longer. Um, a lot of that takes place in closed court and the judges are clearly signing off on those extensions. So we'll know we'll know soon enough. But I mean, I would you know, imagine that the, the full might of the, the PSNI and every available resource and officer is being thrown into this investigation, given that it was the attempted murder of one of their own colleagues. So the car, and you're writing about it this week in the Belfast Telegraph, suggests that this was quite a while planned, certainly, you know, a few weeks. Um, the car was purchased and then hidden somewhere in Belfast. It was. It was actually purchased February the 8th. So that gives you an indication of how long the planning was taking place for and how long this attack had been planned for. So it was a blue Ford Fiesta. It was purchased in um, Ballyclare. It had a registration on it, an MGZ registration, but that was replaced and fitted with false plates, which was an FRZ8414, which was the, the registration, the false registration prior to the attack. Now, sometime between then and the attack on DCI Caldwell and Oma, that car had to be stored somewhere and police believe it was stored in Belfast. It was actually seen um, in the Ardoin area of Belfast before then being driven to um, Coal Island the day before, the Tuesday before the attack on Inspector Caldwell, who was shot then on the Wednesday in front of his young son as he was, as, as he was training him at a, a football match. So the car, obviously, if we, we say the attack took place in February the 22nd. The car was purchased in February the 8th. So we know that it had to be at least that long in planning. And it was caught at several locations on um, police cameras. They're, they're called automatic number plate recognition, ANPR technology it is. And they, they pick up the number plates and registrations of vehicles as they pass through. They'll be placed at strategic points along motorways. Um, police cars are fitted with them. So if police cars are traveling along, they can pick them up. And then the search can be done. And that's how police know the whereabouts and the movements of this car. Um, and that was what they, the new information that they released this week. And that will really could implicate quite a lot of people. Is this car purchased out of a garage or on a sort of a done deal type of a site? Yeah, you know? this was the second, a second-hand car. You know, it was exchanged um, with a, a, a private um, seller. And that is part, clearly the car was found burnt out a couple of miles from the attack um, shortly after it happened. So that was the most significant piece of evidence that detectives would have had. So the, the first point of trying to trace the steps back would be to get the car, to find out through the cars, um, not just the registration which placed by, by false plates, but it would have had a identification numbers inside in the chassis of the car to try to trick that car, find out who it was last registered to, find out who it was sold to, and then try and trace its movements. And that at this point in time, because they haven't recovered any of the two weapons used, the car is really the biggest piece of evidence that they have. And like, you know, when usually when they burn out these cars, do they ever, are they ever able to completely destroy them? Do you know, like that they literally get rid of chassis numbers or can they, do police usually, are they usually able to trace them back? They're usually able to trace them back. But I mean, this car, in terms of DNA, a lot of that would have been destroyed. Mm. We've seen cases in the past, such as, you know, people cast their mind back to the Masarine attack where there were, um, 
two soldiers who were shot dead outside Mastering Barracks in um, in Antrim. On that occasion, the car wasn't properly burned out. It was partially burned. What actually happened was that whoever was responsible for burning that car and destroying it set fire to the inside of the car and then closed all the doors. And if there's no oxygen getting in, the fire just burns itself out very quickly. Mm. So you would see if a car is found burning out and you see um, pictures of that on the news or whatever, you'll see that some of the doors are left open. So they leave the doors open to let the oxygen in and that feeds the fire. And that tends to destroy all the sort of DNA, you imagine sort of stray hairs, all that sort of evidence, fibres from clothing, all of that would be destroyed. But yeah, they're still able to, to actually find the, the origins of the car just through the chassis numbers. That wouldn't be destroyed in the fire. You indicated earlier that this investigation is going to be beyond thorough. I mean, the full might of the PSNI is going to come down on this gang. This is one of their own that has been shot so savagely in front of his own child and other children um, at a football training session or in the aftermath of it. Um, do you have any idea what sort of resources the PSNI are pumping into this? And is this one of those occasions that this could be the end of certainly uh, some of the cells of the new IRA? Is this a step too far by them? Well, what, what happened was in 2019, as, as we know, a new IRA gunman, a teenage gunman, he was sent out to, you know, fire random shots in an armed land rover, hit um, Laura McKay, who was was um, observing a, a riot in Craigan at that time. And then we seen a massive crackdown on the sort of Derry new IRA and members of Sura, which is their political wing in that northwest area. Um, at, shortly after that, then we, we fast forward to August 2020, the MI5 agent, Dennis McFadden, you know, and this is obviously a fascinating story because he had been bedded in with the new IRA since its formation in 2012. He had been a member of the Sura Executive Committee. That's how well embedded in he was. And all of that time, he was actually an MI5 agent who had infiltrated that organisation. As a result of that, the alleged leadership of that organisation were arrested in August 2020. Ten people are facing very serious terrorism charges. And because at that time, I suppose the best way to say was, you know, the sort of the head was taken off a snake, really. Mm. So it took the, the 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 threat level reduced significantly. And we can see that if you look at statistics about attacks, bomb attacks, shootings, all of those sort of things, they dropped to almost nothing in the year and the year two years after that, which resulted in last November, the Home Office then reduced the threat level um, for the first time in over a decade because they believed that that had been neutralised almost that new IRA threat. They were still carrying out very sporadic attacks, but nothing that was of any really great concern. But that's where I suppose questions are going to have to be asked in terms of did those intelligence service think, you know, job done? Mm. You know, these people are done. They're of no threat anymore and take their eye off the ball because what we now know is that they have not only been regrouping but recruiting and also tightening their structures, so not sharing so much information about what they have planned or what attacks they have planned with so many people, so there's less chance of them not making its way back through informers. Um, but, you know, we live in very different times, times where there's so much surveillance everywhere, you know, everybody's phone has a GPS in it. All of that um, evidence is has been used and gathered in, in the past to convict people of very serious crimes. But this, this was so long in the planning, you imagine that it's going to be quite difficult to trace the steps back. But what we do know just from what actually happened, so um, Inspector D.C. Caldwell 
we know coached the, the Borough Swifts under 15s. His son was a player for the team. That was something he did regularly. He did it weekly. That obviously made him an easy target because that was a weekly routine that you could tell that he was going to be there at a certain time every week. Um, so there was that in terms of the target and information didn't require an awful lot of intelligence to do that. But the two gunmen, and there was numerous eyewitnesses who witnessed this attack. So the two gunmen approached DC Caldwell. He was loading equipment and footballs into the back of his car because the coaching session had just ended. This is around eight o'clock. And they opened fire. He is said to have shouted run to his son and to other children in the nearby vicinity. And then he tried to run himself. There was 10 shots fired and he was hit four times in and around the torso. And the gunmen then ran off. They appeared to eyewitnesses to be nervous, to be inexperienced. There was bullet holes in nearby cars. Um, and if I look at, you know, murders that I have covered in the past couple of years, we've had those very assassination type killings almost of drug dealers where they are shot numerous times, mainly in the head. and there's no chance of them surviving or walking away from that. These these were gunmen who, uh, I did the I suppose the theory that mm-hmm. the case now working off now is that this is the first time they've been sent out to do something like this. This type of I suppose what they used to call up close and personal type killings um, are not that common when it comes to the the past history of other distant republicanism or even republicanism in general. Even due to the head of our conflict, these type of shootings weren't actually that common. Um, and there's only a certain amount of people who they would be think would be uh, even able to carry out something like this. But it does look like this was maybe the first time mm. some men had been sent out to do something like this. There was a, a doctor who was actually training at the, the youth centre at the time, and he was able to give emergency first aid to DCI Caldwell's he lay on the ground, and that undoubtedly helped save his life until the, the paramedics could get there and get him to hospital. Um, but he did, you know, the fact that he survived... But we say the caveat we're told he's he's stable, but still very critically ill, and he still is in heavily sedated and induced coma, and he hasn't been raised from that yet because of the severity of his internal injuries. So, is this a scenario from reading between the lines from what you're saying about the new IRA that there is this sort of top command behind bars, um, because of the infiltration of the organisation by the MI5 agent Dennis McFadden? Uh, you have obviously cells of them in various parts of Northern Ireland. Is this the last sting of a dying wasp or is it seen as this new emerging young crew coming up, possibly directed by an older set still out and with their freedoms or perhaps from behind bars? um, And are they the new emerging threat? Yeah, well, what they seem to have done, especially in that sort of Tyrone area, is they have been regrouping because in November last year, there was a a bomb attack in Strabane about sort of 20 miles away from, from Oma. And on that occasion, you know, an improvised device was thrown at a, an armoured police Land Rover. Police said at the time it was an attempt to murder the officers who were inside that vehicle. And that was the first time we'd seen them sort of emerge and do these very planned type attacks um, since the arrest, since the, the McFadden sting. So there's definitely been a regrouping, but what what we know and what we know from, you know, sources we spoke to is a lot of the more seasoned members walked away in recent years. They obviously just thought the situation was done, that many of them are facing lengthy times in prison. Um, they're supposed to harass and ongoing, you know, um, um, implication that they're being 
uh, caught up in something which had no political direction. It wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't going to achieve anywhere. And therefore, what that group has done is they have started to recruit younger and younger members. But that's not particularly a new thing because we know that the gunman who fired the shot that took the, the life of Larry McKee was a teenager himself. Mm-hmm. And we have seen over the years, you notice a pattern when there's people arrested for these type of attacks, the ages are getting younger and younger. Some people who are too young to have ever been involved in any kind of militant republicanism who are too young to have ever been involved with the provisional IRA or any other group that existed during the Troubles. Um, so they're in their like early 30s, mid 30s. But even younger than that, people who weren't even born mm. uh, when we had the Good Friday Agreement weren't even born after the IRA ceasefires getting sucked into this type of you know violent militant republicanism. And that's obviously a really big social issue for there and debate, like why are so many of them being recruited and where and, you know, what's going on in their lives that are attracting them back to that. Um, John Caldwell, you mentioned he did this routinely. He trained this group. It's an ordinary thing for most people in most careers to think it's okay to do uh, without fear of getting shot in front of your children. Um, Other PSNI officers who are involved in sports organizations and uh, other voluntary, perhaps even activities, must be having to rethink their activities outside of their policing. Well, they, they have been warned and they have been given, you know, there's an internal email warning them to be more cautious of their personal security. And also, there's so many officers who are involved in amateur sport, be that, you know, boxing, be that football, be that, you know, the handful of so nationalist officers who are still involved in, in um, Gaelic games. But the specifically, I suppose, that sort of football world, there are dozens of, of officers that are recently retired or still serving who are referees. Um, they have asked that their names no longer be published ahead of time as they're to, to say that they're refereeing matches of a weekend because that puts them in a specific place. The training, I know that a lot of them have said that that won't be going ahead from now on, that they don't want to show up to those coaching sessions because just by the nature of them, you can't organise a whole team to show up for a coaching session and change the time every week. It has to be something that has a routine to it so people can, you know, base their lives around it and organise it. And so all of that, I think, you know, it's already, I mean, to be a police officer in Northern Ireland is not a normal life. You're not living the life that police officers might live in other parts of these islands. Um, many of them, especially if they come from particularly working class areas, be they Republican or even loyalists, have to move to other areas. Um, they have to not socialise in the same places. They may have socialised when they were younger. They have to be careful of where they shop and where they go. And now, obviously, this um, taking this away and the fact that a lot of them maybe coach their children's teams or show up the matches, um, all of that will put fear. And that's what the intention of it was. You know, these kind of attacks, I mean, sporadic attacks, such as carried out by the new IRA. They're not about anything to do with United Ireland. Let's face it, none of this is ever going to advance one iota or one inch any cause for the unification of the island. But what it does do is it stops normalisation. It stops policing becoming normalised. They don't want to see, you know, police officers in short sleeve shirts unarmed. And we had a conversation, bizarrely, a, a few weeks ago, you know, radio phone-in stations were discussing should the police not no longer be routine armed, given that we're in peacetime. The fact that the, the, the PSNI continue to be armed while on duty. Um, there was talk about should there just be an armed response the way there is in other jurisdictions rather than every single officer being armed. Well, I would say that 
discussion is clearly over now for quite some considerable time. Mm. But also officers who would be um, have personal protection weapons who maybe didn't take them with them when they were going, you know, to the supermarket to go out for dinner on a Friday night. Um, I think you'll see more of them carrying those guns with them when they're out for their own protection because of this attack. So that's the, the aim of it is to, first of all, you know, dissuade people who might consider a career in policing from joining the police, especially people from nationalist communities, and also to make sure that we don't see, you know, the, the move towards normalised community-style policing and that it stays on that security footing because that helps. That's a propaganda coup for the organisations such as this, you know, that they can say just recently, I'm sitting, you know, at the moment doing a story about a, a website belonging to Sura, which is widely believed to be the political wing of the IRA, including the, the name and a photograph of a, a uniformed officer. And the language used in that is, you know, the language of the past. They use things like crown forces and occupying forces and that sort of language. And that's why that security policing sort of falls into their hands. They don't want to see normalised community policing and attacks like this ensure that that style of policing is pushed back and put on the back agenda in return for officers still travelling in armoured vehicles, you know, being seen wearing those sort of rats style, sort of TSG type clothing and all of that sort of builds into the, the propaganda picture that they're trying to paint. Some people might be surprised by the sophistication, albeit crass, of that sort of thinking and that sort of uh, organisation that they have. It's obviously not the young guys they're recruiting know anything about that, but there is still as such an intelligence and an academia behind groups like the new IRA? Well, many of those organisations who would have been after the ceasefire are opposed to Sinn Féin's direction and opposed to where they're going and still wedded to this idea that republicanism should be about, you know, armed republicanism, militant republicanism. Um, a lot of those have moved away from that thinking and we've seen one of the, the most active of the groups, um, and they called the ceasefire in 2019, they said that there's no longer, you know, the appetite and the climate. And and we've had groups like the RSP who link to the NLA saying there's now a clear path, a trajectory to a border pole or a future border pole in the United Ireland. And therefore, you know, there's no place for this type of, of violence anymore because violence is just violence for violence sake. You know, mm. um, um, they can't use the type of justifications, I suppose, that armed groups would have used in the past when that climate no longer exists. Um and we can see since Brexit, there's obviously a renewed discussion around United Ireland and a border poll, and that's also happening in Scotland. <clears throat> well, there's talk about a second Indy referendum. So anyone with any political thinking would say, well, that's where we should be concentrating our energies. I wouldn't say there's a great deal of political intellect behind these groups, but they do know how to orchestrate propaganda to their advantage. I mean, they know it's coming up to the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which they clearly oppose. Um, they know there's a lot of uh, press attention on Northern Ireland at the minute because of the protocol and the Brexit negotiations and all of that that makes this place more newsworthy, I suppose, to international press who you know lost interest in, in Northern Ireland during peacetime. Mm. So they know they'll get more publicity around this. We had the Prime Minister's visit to Northern Ireland this week to try and sell the, um, the new protocol deal that has been agreed with the, the EU. And, you know, the first thing he said when he appeared at the Coca-Cola factory, because he's meeting with business leaders, and the first thing he said was, you know, his thoughts with the family of John Caldwell. So you can see that they're getting the publicity that they obviously crave mm. in relation to this, and that's part of the aim as well. You know, a lot of it is for propaganda purposes. But again, to, you know... That's an impossible situation to try and really control. Like, do you 
I mean, because you can't ignore a thing like this happening either. You do have to give it the news it requires. And and the PSNI can't be just go behind walls and stay behind walls. Yeah. They have to come out into the community and they have to be seen. Mm. And PCI Caldwell was very, very well known. I mean, he's the highest ranking officer to be targeted in Northern Ireland in what we call peacetime, I suppose, but it's an imperfect peace, let's face it. Um, but also... He had an extremely high profile. He was involved in some extremely high profile cases. He would have been involved in the investigation into the murder of Ronan Carr. He was blew up with a, an undercar baby shop bomb in 2011. Um, he was a you know a young Catholic recent recruit to the PSNI. He was involved in that investigation. You will know that he was one of the people who gave evidence in the, the Regency trial on behalf of the PSNI. He was the person that was sent to Ballymun to pick the pictures up of Kevin Murray, the, the person known as Flat Cap, to bring them north to have them ID'd. Um, and so that was his role in that. And that was, I mean, you can't get much more high profile in that case. He was also, for about a week, he was senior investigating officer in the murder of Natalie McNally, a, a young pregnant woman who was stabbed to death in her home a week before Christmas. Again, couldn't have a more high profile case to be involved in. And in January, there was a gangland style murder of a guy called Shane Whitler in Lurgan and he is was the SIO in that case as well and again numerous media interviews given numerous press facilities in the run up to that so his face was out there his name was out there and you know I suppose in his 20 odd year career there's probably never been a time when his profile has been so high. Mm. And obviously um, all hopes are that he will recover from this and he will get out of uh, the, that sort of critical uh, condition and move into more stable uh, condition while I think the hospitals are saying that he is critical but stable it's the critical bit that everybody's hoping that he can uh, they can move him down to uh, a lesser level of that but kind of from the bigger picture what do you think is needed required is hoped for to bring back a bit of a confidence I mean this is obviously such a kick in the face for everybody when this sort of thing happens um, and, you know, you're talking about all the publicity this new IRA are getting, um, you know, the fact it looks as if they're almost, you know, their high command is behind bars facing trial. There has been an informant in their ranks, all the rest of it. And yet they come and do something like this. What's required now? And do you think the PS and I have enough of a handle on the threat they pose? Well, no, they clearly didn't have a handful on it because mm. the attack was able to take place. MI5 had clearly taken an eye off the ball, as had those other intelligence agencies. So I suppose there'll have to be a regroupment of that. But, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in prevention rather than then having to go back and try and investigate after something like this happens. And it is clearly no accident that the places there are pockets of distant Republican activity in Northern Ireland, you know, in and around sort of East Tyrone. Um, areas of Derry and Strabane and parts of Belfast, North and West Belfast, although there'd be quite low numbers in Belfast at the minute. But those are all areas with high levels of economic deprivation. They're all areas where there are young men who have maybe, you know, not got great educational achievement, don't have great employment prospects. They're places that maybe haven't seen the same investment as other areas. And so just like if you go to any area and you went to somewhere in the north of England where there's a lot of um, deprivation and um, social inequality, you'll find young men becoming members of criminal gangs and being involved in criminality. Well, it's no different here. You know, if you're going to groom a young person to join one of those organisations, a young person who feels that they don't have much else 
going on in their life is much easier to bring into that way of thinking than someone who has prospects and has good, you know, good employment outlook, who has something to look forward to in the future, are not going to be just as quick to put themselves in harm's way and in danger of either death or prison in the same way that you can if you go into an area where there's a high level of that kind of um, unemployment and, and uh, social inequality. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of trying to deal with that. Mm. I know there are some organisations who have been trying to do that. But if you deal with that, and then also there has to be confidence in policing and confidence in the justice system. You know, if people see, you know, young men who are accused of quite serious criminality being arrested one day, going through the courts, being bailed and released the day after that, well, then those organisations, that's when you see them using um, those sort of punishment style attacks, you know, kneecappings, beatings. Um, and then they can claim that they are the person who is defending the community because the police aren't fit for purpose and the police aren't arresting these people. So you need a really robust and um, criminal justice system that people have confidence in because then that takes away some of the justification these groups try and use when they're in areas where they're trying to gain coercive control over the, the community so you deal with that and then you lessen and the numbers become smaller and smaller and smaller and then the smaller they are the easier they are to manage and you know the numbers had became very small after the Dennis McFadden MI5 sting because you only have to look at Sura which is obviously the political wing of this group it held a, an Ardesh in Newry for several years and it filled a room you know of a hotel and, and while the numbers wouldn't have been massive they would have been you know 100 150 people attending those meetings and then after that huge sting when their alleged leadership was jailed they had to move to the sort of upstairs room in a bar where the numbers were in you know barely double figures you know probably about 20 people showed up and so you could see that that was working it was reducing but then you can't just get to that point and then just leave things and hope for the best which is mm. clearly what happened because if there's a vacuum you know someone will come along and and fill it i do think it's it's you know, it's very sad that someone who was involved in something like this all their life and had spent a great deal of their life either in prison or before the courts fighting charges for this or involved in this kind of violent militant republicanism would then want that for a younger generation and want that for, you know, mm. younger people and especially younger relatives. I mean, it's coming up to the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and I've been talking to prisoners who were released as part of that early release scheme. And everyone, regardless of where they came from, regardless of what group they were associated with in the past, regardless of whether they're loyalist and Republican, every single one has said the same thing. I didn't want that for my children. I didn't want that for my grandchildren. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, we see people who are involved in this type of dissident Republicanism. They seem to very much want that for their, their children and grandchildren. And that baffles me. Absolutely. And finally, Alison, do you think that this was something that was ordered from inside the prison system? You know, the people involved would suggest that there's some people within the prison who would have been aware of this. But I think as more comes to light as the time goes on and if we do get arrests and we're able to then name and identify the people who, um, if they do face charges, it will become clear. I'll be able to paint a clearer picture then, mm -hmm. as you'll see by the, the names of who they are and who they're associated with are um, they're people who you can see how this led to, to what we had happening in Oma. Okay. Well, Alison Morris, thank you very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, 
leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.